0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Identity theft occurs when someone other than you assumes your identity and as a result, is able to use your name, credit score, and reputation for his own use and benefits. It's a safe bet to say that no one ever wants to be on the receiving end of identity theft. But what if the theft took place and without challenge, you surrendered your own identity? Sadly, this is the condition of much of the church today. Back in 1987, Ross House Books published a work by Charles Provan entitled, The Church is Israel Now. I'd like to read from the backliner of the book. Quote, during this century, and just as an aside, he was talking about the 20th century, Christians have been told over and over again that God has an unconditional love for Old Testament Israel by which is meant that God's love is directed toward persons racially descended from Abraham, regardless of faith or obedience. Membership in Israel, therefore, is viewed as a matter of race, not faith. The Church is Israel now demonstrates that the Bible totally repudiates this racialist viewpoint. Being a member of Israel in the Old Testament was dependent upon faith and obedience to God. When the Israelites obeyed God, God loved them, but when they turned from him, he hated them, stripping them of their Israelite status. After centuries of Israelite rebellion against God, culminating in their rejection of Jesus the Messiah, the titles, attributes, and blessings of Israel were transferred to all those who received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to no one else. Regardless of Abrahamic descent, the church is Israel now. Unquote. So Charles, explain if you would the particulars of this view that the political nation of Israel as God's chosen people and how it is antithetical to an orthodox rendering of scripture.
0: Well, this idea is a relatively new one in the long history of the Christian faith. And one reason for that is the fact that prior to the 19th century, no one had ever talked about this sort of thing like you described, into which Mr. Provent's book uh, seeks to correct some mistaken ideas. If you take, say, a lemon and squeeze it, you get lemon juice, and I've often said if you could use the without attending, intending to be, uh, sacrilegious or blasphemous or anything, if you could take scripture and squeeze it, what would come out is anything but the modern dispensational view that Israel is a separate nation of people, uh, covenantally speaking with separate blessings and a separate track of salvation from that which is given to us in Holy scripture, which is the standard view of What is called dispensationalism. So uh, prior again to the writings of a number of these early uh, authors and creators of this system, you can start from the earliest history, the writings of the church fathers in the first and second centuries AD, uh, right up to the 1800s. And you don't find anything like the dispensational perspective, or at least if you do, it's in marginal fringe groups who, um, you know, were, were not taken seriously or were deemed heretical by just about every branch of the Christian church. Uh, I think it, it's, it's an incredible to me that this is so easily refuted from Scripture. And it's so obvious that you, you have to have this idea about uh, the significance of racial or ethnic Israel as a you know, distinct nation of people who have yet some blessing to receive from God as we near what they call the end. The only way you can get there is by having that idea in your head to begin with and then go to Scripture and try to support it, because you cannot get that starting from Genesis and going through Revelation without somebody loading it up into your mind uh, prior. I said it's easy to refute it, and it's so easy from Scripture to see the mistakes of it. And I just want to give one example. Um, in, In Joshua chapter 21, if you start at verse 43 and go to verse 45, which is the last several verses of that chapter, uh, it's very clear. I'll just read it. Thus the Lord gave Israel, meaning Old Covenant Israel, all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he swore to their fathers. And Not all, not one of all their enemies had withstood to them, just as the Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. And then verse 45 Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass hard stop. (laughs) So anybody who says that there are yet promises to be fulfilled and this hasn't happened yet and all the rest of it, they don't read their Bibles. They're they're reading the rantings and ravings of people who are not very well educated in the broad sweep of what scripture teaches. And uh, that, Broad sweep starts with Genesis 1 and goes through Revelation 22.
1: Okay, so what you're saying is that if you don't look at Scripture and then interpret what's happening in your world with the starting point being Scripture, as opposed to what has sometimes been referred to as newspaper eschatology, look at what's happening in the world and jamming it into Scripture... Do you think that the idea of identity theft is a stretch to say the church of Jesus Christ is experiencing identity theft when especially now that there's conflict in the Middle East and you have all the dispensationalists assured, assured that Jesus is coming soon, that they don't know who they are. They don't know who they are in Christ, the church I'm talking about. And they've actually allowed for an alternate way of salvation for the Jews.
0: Yes, and one of the main promoters of this idea and these ideas in modern times actually wrote a book a couple of years ago in which he argued that um, the Jews were not culpable in any way, shape, or form for rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. Uh, That is not to be uh, charged to them. That God has, you know, some other sort of messianic promise relating to them specifically that doesn't involve Jesus, or at least not in the traditional Orthodox Christian way. Now, even from, I think, within his own dispensational camp, uh, there was such an outcry of the obvious heresy of those writing the false teaching that he soon pulled the book from publication. Obviously people who challenged the dispensational perspective had a field day with it because it was that, it, and really he was being consistent. You know, this is where you go. If you start from the standpoint that God's main plan is dealing with this ethnic entity known as the Israelites, and they always equate old covenant Israel with the modern state of Israel. And maybe a little bit later, we can talk about why that is very problematic just on, um, ethnic grounds. Uh, because of that, therefore, the church is in their own terminology, a parenthesis. It's not the main purpose of God's program. And so the, um, the church is to set aside as, as what happened when, whoops, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So we got to come up with something else until they finally begin to think straight and they'll, you know accept him as the messiah as uh, as we near the the end of all things that's the standard perspective so it's no coincidence that you find churches that are not solidly ground in a historical christian perspective about the nature of the church and the covenant especially the covenantal nature of scripture and god's dealings with humanity that all of their focus whether you've got something going on like what we have at the present moment uh in the modern state of israel uh and than the Palestinians, or the, it, there's nothing going on. They, they they always bang these drums that uh, the main thing that the, the the Christians have to do is prepare for this the rapture and the second coming that all relate to. And, and I'll just stray off into some of the you know aspects of the teaching, the rebuilding of a of another temple in Jerusalem and uh, the the restoring of the sacrifices just as it was in old covenant times and all the rest of it. And you can find, especially in light of recent activities, uh, somebody posted a video the, just recently the other day. I don't know what the guy's orientation was. It looked like he was speaking at some uh, modern church setting with a stage. But the whole place was covered with Isra- Israeli state flags. And this man literally said, you know, we've got to destroy the Muslims and the Palestinians and their various resistance organizations so the temple can be rebuilt. And we can help Jesus come back again. That's what he said. I heard it with my own ears. And, right,
1: right. Yeah. So, so that's what's so interesting is when you buy into this, you miss the fact that Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension inaugurated the ministry of reconciliation. You also omit the fact that in Muslim countries around the world, there is a growth of Christianity. And yet, all that we hear about what's happening in Israel, nobody's talking about what's currently happening in Armenia. Armenia is experiencing Christian persecution. This is like Nigeria have experienced Christian persecution. But all that becomes important is something that supports this narrative, which, quite frankly, Charles, is about, oh, wow, things are going to get bad but we're not going to be here. You see, we're going to be gone by that time, and we don't have to deal with the bad stuff. So this whole theology of Israel, current modern-day Israel being God's chosen people, I think is a revolt against the responsibility we have as Christ's ambassadors to the world.
0: Well, the scriptural evidence that God fulfilled and kept all the promises he made to old covenant Israel has been given already. Uh, There's really nothing more that needs to be said than that, as far as people who have this idea that there's some reason that, you know, we have to sort of step aside and um, let God deal, as they say, with the modern state of Israel as if he he owes them something. But let's go back. I I think it'd be helpful to put some context here. Maybe many of our, our listeners, they don't necessarily find this unusual, but they may know people who would be rather struck by what is actually the historic Christian position. You know, God's plan from the beginning was to redeem a people for himself to take back what had been lost because of the sin of man. And he had promised even in Genesis 3 that a redeemer would come, that there would be two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And even in the old covenant time, the seed of the woman, which could be identified with the Old Testament nation that God made his covenant with, was never a racial or ethnic one. Because when you find, say, for example, in the Exodus, when the Israelites left Egypt, they had already intermarried with lots of different kinds of people, if you want to talk about this from a purely racial thing. But the issue was covenant, being in faithful covenant, which means keeping the law and the teachings of Jehovah God that he made with them and their fathers. And what we see being elaborated all through the pages of the Old Covenant, especially in the writings of the prophets, that that was moving toward a decisive event in history. Now, here's where our friends go wrong who are so into this stuff that we're describing. They rarely place much emphasis on the arrival of the Christ and his teaching the kingdom. It's like the first coming of Jesus means nothing to them except at Christmas time when they put up their Christmas trees. It's all about the second coming but the significance and the the world historical impact of the birth of Jesus Christ the king of kings in time in history as a fulfillment of everything up to that point is just shunned aside as no big deal compared to what we have c- coming forward with the rapture and all the rest of it. So that's one thing is that there's there's not a full orbed perspective on God's plan moving through history and the the part that Christ plays in that in terms of changing everything. The second thing is, if you simply read the Gospels, and I would encourage people to read and reread the Gospel of John in particular, read it from 10 different translations, read it in the original languages if you are able to do that, it's easy to see that the central problem that Jesus encountered with the people who were supposed to receive him was that their leadership, the Pharisees in particular, had long abandoned Old Testament theology and doctrine. The teachings of Moses... Well, they were there, but they had glommed on to these teachings, their own ideas, and some of that came out of the Babylonian captivity and uh, various other things. So by the time Jesus came on the scene, he was simply quoting very often and almost always old, what we call Old Testament scriptures, and these people were going berserk. <laughs> they right. couldn't imagine, why, why would you be saying this stuff? But he was simply quoting Moses, but they had strayed so far from it, it sounded bizarre to them.
1: So you alluded to that you would go into it, and I think this would be a good time to do so. The political nation of Israel came into being in 1948, post-World War II. In a real biblical sense, if you're looking at covenantal theology, etc., is there any good reason to look at that event and say this came from God in the sense that Now we're on the right track. His people have once again become a nation.
0: Absolutely not. And I can say that with confidence simply because if you dig the ground out of which that whole event happened and you see the things leading up to it, the discussions that were being held, it's obvious that even among the Jews themselves, there were many of them who were dead set against the establishment of what we call the modern state of Israel. And there still remain today more than one sect of Orthodox Jews who are not Zionists and they see serious problems. But apart from that, I mean, our perspective is of course that of the Bible, you know, we, we have this, this standpoint that I just outlined it in terms of what scripture tells us to be expecting as we move forward into the future. But then we have the, the practical things that led to the creation of the modern state of Israel and the issue of, well, who exactly are the Jews? Now I realize. let me just say, that, you know, maybe to some extent, uh, this is controversial um, discussion, but it has to be had simply because the issue is being forced upon us by others. I mean, I think you and I would just as soon be talking about something else, but in light of the way things have been going, maybe we need to. When you look at the creation of the modern state of Israel, that just didn't happen in a vacuum. I think some people think that the Lord was sitting on some big throne in heaven and snapped his fingers and bang, Israel came into existence. Oh, no. There was a great deal of political maneuvering and, frankly, terrorism that led to the creation of that state. And I don't mean Muslim-Islamic terrorism. And one particular helpful guide to what led to this is the book that I think is available from the Chalcedon store, The Incredible Schofield and His Book. That book is the history of C.I. Schofield and the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible, which laid the foundation of for much of these ideas relating to the rapture and the expectation of a modern state of Israel and an ethnic component to it. And it's interesting that that Bible, the Schofield Reference Bible, was published by none other than Oxford University Press. Now, there's a real history about how that happened. This man, Schofield, was basically unknown to most people. I mean, it wasn't as if the Pope wrote something and got it published by Oxford University Press. This man was very obscure. And there were forces behind that publication who thought that what he was writing, there there could be political mileage gained from people getting on board with what that Bible and its study notes in particular were promoting, which is that uh, there will be a Jewish homeland that's important to uh, that there be this ethnic component to things. So the other aspect to this is what exactly or who exactly is a Jew today? Now, you can Google that and you can do your Wikipedia search, but probably the most important thing you can do if you really want an answer is get on a plane and fly to Israel today, if you could, and ask that question among people there. I've been there. I spent two weeks there in 2009. You don't have to go there necessarily to find this out. But you have different groups of people there who all say they are Jews. And I'm not saying they're not by their definition, but most people or some people may be aware that you have a delineation between Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews. And one group of those people are Semitic. They have a Middle Eastern background. Some of them, especially in the modern state of Israel, come from the mostly Arabic country of Yemen. There's a large contingent of Yemeni Jews in Israel, and they have a very different character and in some cases, very different ways of doing things than the Jews who live in Jerusalem, many of whom have come from Eastern Europe. And they have no connection whatsoever uh, to the Semitic people, as they're called, based on language, who have populated that region for a long, long time. So even within the state of Israel, you have conflicts and disputes. And you can see also what we would call discrimination against some of these Arabic-speaking and Jews who come from Semitic Middle Eastern backgrounds, as opposed to those who come from Eastern Europe.
1: So not knowing that, it's very easy to think that as a group, the Jews are monolithic. They're all the same. They all think the same. However, we should make a distinction between covenantalism and ethnicity. So... Not everyone who is a Jew outwardly is one, it's one who is a Jew inwardly, or not an outward circumcision, but an inward circumcision. So we live in a time where people are pushing race, race, race. And the Bible is clear, it's grace over race. And there have been different times, and I know you've written about this in the past, where people have tried to push the Anglo-Saxons as the the superior race and the descendants of um, the patriarchs and in the book that you wrote grace over race, or I thought I remember it was race over race, grace o- or Gra- race over grace yeah. race over grace, right? You weren't speaking about this Jewish issue. You were speaking about this idea that the Anglo-Saxon people were the chosen people. So it's not unusual for people to decide their group or the chosen people, but what's so bizarre to me is why the evangelical church is so satisfied by living in this parenthesis that they were God's plan B as opposed to always plan A.
0: Well, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that that is the case. And I guess if you're coming, I don't mean you personally, but if somebody's say coming from a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox background or a traditional Reformed background. It can be very surprising because those traditions don't have a background of this. I mean, it's hard to avoid it if you're living in in these United States over the past hundred years or, or, you know, currently. Because like you said, the evangelical churches are so deeply influenced by it. And just to give a, a quick explanation for that, you know, going into the 1800s and early 1900s, the, um, the influence of liberalism in the mainline, what we today call mainline Protestant churches, especially the Presbyterian church, had begun to erode things to where you had people like Jay Gresham Machen and others who were so focused on dealing with direct challenges to the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, that that left the door open. To people who had other agendas, such as the Schofield uh, Reference Bible and the Dispensationalists, who were conservative, they believed all those central doctrines, but they had added all these other things. And with the decline of the Reformed churches in particular and Reformed education, you you had groups like the early Methodists, some groups of Baptists, Revivalism, like uh, that of Finney and others where these people fanned out across what would become these United States into the Western territories, which in those days would be, say, around you know, Illinois or Missouri, and they began to establish churches. And many of these groups did not require an educated clergy. Now, you know, I, I agree there can be an arrogance associated with that, and the Lord isn't, doesn't require, require a person to have some sort of degree after their name uh, to use that person for the advancement of his kingdom. But throughout the history of the church, it's deemed important that pastors, elders, deacons, evangelists, whoever, have some background in how to understand Scripture and what constitutes Christian doctrine uh, properly so-called. And many of these groups had no interest in that. They just simply me and my Bible, no interest in creeds or confessions. I characterize this in in an intentionally unfair way. But for the people who think like this, you've got Jesus and the apostles And then you've got nothing for almost a thousand years. And then you've got this guy, Martin Luther, who I'm not crazy about anyway. And then you got Billy Graham and that's, that's their, that's their church history, but that's not church history. And if that's your view, then you're open to all kinds of things like this. So that's the background of the modern evangelical tradition. And so they are open to being influenced by things that are profoundly unbiblical. And I, um, Uh, About a year or so ago, I was doing fill-in preaching at uh, a startup church in the Reformed movement in my area, and I had to drive on the other side of the town where I live, and this particular group was renting a church facility, but right next to the church facility they were renting was another church. I even took a picture of this because I was so stunned. They had a flagpole with an American flag, and guess what was underneath the American flag? It wasn't the South Carolina state flag. It wasn't the Christian flag. It was the modern state of Israel flag. This is how far things have gone in, in this direction. And, uh, I'll just stop with this point. I saw uh, a post on Facebook today. It was a meme of the Israeli flag and it said, pray for Israel. And I started to type, you know what? I think I'm going to pray for the Christians in Palestine, but I didn't do it.
1: Yeah. No, <laughs> I mean,
0: I at that point, it. it's, it's kind of a, a waste of time, but it's like it, that's another part of the sad thing is that not only are people who think this way ready to accept this lower class status in God's program, which just doesn't exist, but they ignore their brothers and sisters in Christ to give their support to people who are involved in an official political state that denies the deity of Christ and his centrality, and in, in some cases even speak of him blasphemously.
1: Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so that's a statement of, you want to be considered God's people. Yes, God elects you, but there's a responsibility. You must live by what God says. And so, as you pointed out, those who run the modern state of Israel have little use for the word of God. It's among the most humanistic nations. If you take a look at the things that many people balked at during COVID, that was going on in Israel as well. Israel requires, at least they did, conscription of women into the armed forces. The abortion rate in Israel is not minor, it's high. And so we do have this double standard. It's like the favorite child. Everybody else has to obey the rules, but somehow the favorite child doesn't have to obey the rules. And it's more than just not obeying the rules. It's denying Jesus Christ as Messiah. So if you take a look at even the Orthodox Jewish faith, those who would look at the the original scriptures and say, we should follow them, they don't sacrifice anymore. And they deny that Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. So isn't that denying Jesus as the Christ? Isn't that one of the definitions of being anti-Christ? Denying that Jesus came in the flesh as God and paid the price for the sins of the world.
0: It is absolutely. Uh, Another aspect to that that uh, many people are not aware of simply because they don't take the time to find out or they're just simply Uh, channeling the modern, you know, media and its perspective on just about everything is the prevalence in the modern state of Israel of sodomites and transgender people. The largest community of people who fit those descriptions. I am, I I think I'm correct in saying this outside of the United States and Europe is in Tel Aviv in Israel. They have a massive gay pride parade every year, maybe ongoing. And it's interesting to me that I have seen efforts on the part of the media uh, to try to paint the Palestinian protests that have been taking place in different parts of this country as some sort of uh, homosexual thing. I I think somebody showed up at a Palestinian protest in New York City or somewhere like that, and they had a rainbow flag. The one place, again, I, I think I'm correct in making this assertion, the one place where transgenderism and Sodomy are frowned upon and strictly forbidden is in the modern area of Palestine where it's predominantly Muslim and Christian on that score let me just say when I began to understand these things a long long time ago I approached a relative of mine who was had been for many many years an evangelical pastor and more or less you know embraced some of these ideas that we are critiquing And I mentioned to him some of these things, and he himself had been to Israel. This is a long time ago. But he told me, he said, Charles, you're not telling me anything I didn't know, because he said, I know for a fact that the only Christians in that place are the Arabs, the Arabic-speaking people. And that's a fact that most people are completely unaware of. So, again, we have this idea on the part of some folks that, you know, there's some special program here where, as God's word tells us, that's not the case. And you have to basically deny the basic principles and teachings in the book of Hebrews, the writings of Paul, to come out with an explanation as these people do. The sacrifices are over. Jesus gave us the perfect and final sacrifice. In previous days, the Lord spoke by the means of the prophets. In these final days, he's spoken to us through his son. And that means Holy Scripture. End of story. That's it. There's there's nothing else. And as Paul went to great pains to write, you know, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, etc. But even, I think, more importantly, and I believe it's Matthew 21 uh, and several other places in the Gospels, Jesus flat out tells the leaders of the Jews, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to those who bear the fruits thereof. His, His parables, in many cases, were explicit statements about the losing of covenant privilege, on the part of those people, and you say, well, and "Well, why would they lose it? Didn't God make these unconditional promises to them?" No, none of God's promises are unconditional. They all have conditions. But going back to that passage from Joshua twenty-one, the promises that He did didn't make to make to them, He fulfilled. So we might as well just say that a person can, in the end, be saved by never having accepted Christ and live living a life of, uh, of a as a profligate libertine that simply is not supported by scripture, no matter what you call yourself.
1: So that book I referenced at the beginning, The Church is Israel Now. The subtitle is The Transfer of Conditional Privilege. And I think this is an important subtitle because too many people actually are under the delusion that God is bound by my profession of faith, whether or not I live by that profession of faith. So this God loves me unconditionally, no matter what I do is ridiculous because the condition was Christ's death. The condition was our sins being paid for. So if we have this alternate way, and Charles, I've heard sermons that are so convoluted as to the timeline, and then the church will be raptured, and then there'll be this and that, and then the the temple will be rebuilt, and the Antichrist will be there. It sounds like a bad science fiction series, but people are willing to embrace it because, as I said, they don't know their own identity. They don't know that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, not the gates of hell will not prevail against the modern political state of Israel.
0: One of the advantages of that book by Provan is that he shows biblically how all of the promises And descriptions and characterizations that God made to old covenant Israel are in the new covenant applied to the church. And that's why uh, there's that that title, uh, the transfer of conditional privilege. Now, the dispensationalists have ginned up a term that they use as a pejorative to say, oh, you're advocating replacement theology. You know, like that's right up there with modalism and uh, all the other smelly heresies of the early church. Well, no, what we're advocating is what Scripture teaches, which is that God starts and moves through history with a plan that, yes, it concentrates on a small group of people, but the whole force of that concentration begins to widen and broaden. And not only are, are the covenant promises of God not restricted to one group of people who have a certain last name. It's not restricted to one strip of land in the Middle East. You know, Christ said, Go into all the world and make the nations my disciples. And so you can see in the symbolism where God tells, you know, his old covenant people, Go to this land. I'm giving you this land. That's simply a template. That is a motif for the entire world being given to God's people for them to rule over in his name and restore that which was lost in the original creation in terms of covenant and human beings place in it
1: it's as though when we swallow this idea that the church and israel are separate when when the new testament refers to the saints well the old testament referred to the saints new testament talks of god's elect god's beloved god's called god's flock god's holy nation kingdom of priests etc etc if you don't know the Old Testament, which, of course, antinomianism discourages because it doesn't apply anymore, you can miss the fact that the apostles knew God's promises and could see this transfer of privilege. That What were the, the parables about the fig tree that was condemned? You know, the parables of Jesus struck home with the religious leaders of the day. That's why they wanted to kill him. Not because he was saying nice things about them. When when Jesus would say, you have heard it said, but I say, too many believers think he was dissing the Old Testament scripture. He was not. He was saying that what your religious leaders teach you is erroneous. So go back to what I say, not to what they say.
0: Yes, and he clearly said on more than one occasion you know you have denied the scriptures in order to promote your traditions people need to think very hard well what what does that mean what are these traditions well that's easy enough to determine it is what has come to be known in uh, over the centuries as the talmudic tradition I, I think some of our evangelical friends who are who've bought into this teaching they they think that orthodox jews jews of serious faith well, they read the same Bible we do. They just don't have the New Testament in it. I think I'm correct in saying that is absolutely not the case. Now, they may have that Bible. They may have, you know, the the old Hebrew scriptures or whatever they want to call it. But the fact is, if you claim to be Jewish and you eschew or put aside the Talmudic traditions of the rabbis, you're going to be in big trouble. There is a small group of Jews who do take that position, and they do focus purely on what we call the Older Testament, and especially the writings of Moses. They're called the Kairites. You can look this up. It's it's easily determined and looked up. And there are a group of them who live in Israel today, and they're not well regarded by the rest of them because they do reject the Talmudic tradition. So over a period of many hundreds of years, the teachings and the commentaries of the various rabbis, and some of these teachings are very incisive and very important, but they were collected orally and then written down. And today, translated into English, that collection of teachings comprises about 30 volumes. And so the general idea is that you cannot simply understand or read what we call the Old Testament without having that set of commentaries and the insights, which are just on the same level of authority as the Bible itself. Now, I was asked some years ago in a presbytery exam, you know, what my views were on modern Israel and what is God's plan for the Jews? And my response was, and I stand by this response, as I hope any Reformed believer or any serious student of Scripture would, God's plan for the elect among the Jews is the same as his plan for the elect among the Gentiles. If you're going to be saved, you must accept Christ as Lord and King and thereby become a Christian. So that's another one of these strange anomalies that we find in that particular religion is that somehow you can maintain the title of being Jewish but at the same time be an atheist or a Buddhist. uh, or About the only thing that you simply cannot be at once, it's oxymoronic, is from their standpoint, a Jewish Christian. And anybody who thinks that that's an easy thing, I invite you again to go to the modern state of Israel and talk to the people there, especially those who do claim to be Jewish Christians. You'll find very quickly that this idea is totally rejected by the Jewish leadership, religious and political in that country.
1: As we are having this discussion, we're in the month of October, and it always is amazing to me that the marketing strategies in our consumer society, they all follow the same pattern. You know, so it's October, so you'll have witches and goblins and and skeletons, and th- they'll be everywhere, right? doesn't matter if you're going into the uh, pharmacy or you're going into a grocery store or you're going into a clothing store everybody's gotten the memo that we have to do Halloween motif. And then when something comes out like the conflict in the Middle East, then all of a sudden you see almost like, you know, blinded sheep, pray for Israel, Israel, you know, we, we, we have to stand with Israel and, and then decrying the cruelty of the opposition beheading children. And isn't this atrocious? Well, first of all, Beheading of children happens pretty regularly in our country yep. in the abortion clinic. Yep. And then if you look at what happened in other nations, I mentioned Armenia. I mentioned Nigeria, places in China. It's not like the Christians fare well there, but you have very little discussion on that. Why? Because unfortunately, most Christians get their information from secular media and they believe what they're told. So. Whether or not something is staged, whether or not something is actually happening, they don't have the reference point, how does this line up with what the word of God says? Not, I'm going to tell you what it says. And so it becomes very difficult. You mentioned earlier before we started that uh just like COVID was a deal breaker among some friends and relatives, this issue becomes the same. And you have to wonder... Do people realize when they're being used to the point that not only is there identity theft, they smile about it. We're not God's chosen. Somebody else is. And there's got to be a new standard because they don't read their Bible and apply it. But, oh, yeah, there are whole portions of the Bible we don't apply either because that's the Old Testament.
0: One of the sad tragedies of these times is the complete disregard based on ignorance, largely, or unconcern of the flight, if I can use that term, of our Christian brothers and sisters in places like the Middle East, and especially in the modern state of Israel and Palestine. Again, having been there and had the privilege of talking to both Jews and Christians in Israel, and Muslims and Christians and Jews, you, you get a very different perspective than if your world is shaped by the popular news media in this country. Now, I'm glad you mentioned just a moment ago about what's happening today with Armenia, and I'm not sure the country where there's the conflict. Everybody's heard the term Holocaust, but I wonder how many people know that in the 20th century, there was a Holocaust long before anything that happened during the World War II era. It was a Holocaust of Armenian Christians. I had no idea about any of this. And that was one of the things that led me to reach out to R.J. Rushtuni when I first heard about it. And when I was familiar with his story and his life, I was sending in a donation to the Calcedon Foundation. I enclosed a note and I said, Dr. Rushtuni, could you recommend a book that chronicles the history of the Armenian Holocaust? And he wrote me back and and the little uh, receipt that they would send when you'd make donations back then. He enclosed a note, which I still have to this day in which he answered that question and recommended a, a couple of books that he, he said were, were very good for that. And so uh, this is an example of how our evangelical friends with their Israeli flags, they know nothing about either the modern situation with Christians, whether it be in Palestine or Israel or some Muslim country or even here in the United States. They, they have no regard for how Christians are being persecuted or they have very little regard. But, you know, if, if it doesn't show up on the evening news, then for all intents and purposes, it just simply doesn't exist.
1: I think there's a quote attributed to Adolf Hitler that said, we don't have to worry what we're doing with the Jews. Nobody cared about what happened with the Armenians.
0: Yes. If it wasn't him, it was somebody high up in the Nazi hierarchy.
1: So so where do we go from here? It's like recapture the identity that you have in Christ. You're a new creation. And as a new creation, you have the power of the Holy Spirit No, the temple doesn't have to be rebuilt because the Christian has the Holy Spirit indwelling. And we are supposed to be the manifestation of the incarnated Christ so that as we go and speak to people, no matter where they live, no matter what their ethnic background, the message remains the same. It's like, how would you possibly evangelize someone who denies Christ, who happens to call himself a Jew and somehow say you're God's chosen people, even though you don't obey God. In other words, we become schizophrenic. And I do think it's time for people to recognize what the scripture says about those who are in Christ and reclaim the identity that you've been given and not treat it as though it's some secondhand thing And you're just part of the interim plan. Now, Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He doesn't say the gates of hell will not prevail against the 1948 founded nation of Israel.
0: In all of the Gospels, you'll find that when Jesus began his public ministry, it says he went about preaching the kingdom. Uh, doesn't it doesn't say he went about preaching salvation, accepting me as your personal savior. Uh, that's part of the kingdom. I'm not saying it isn't. But the, the message of Christ, the message of the gospel is a broader one than what has been distilled down for us in the uh, revivalistic evangelicalism of of our times. Now, I, I just want to say that I recognize, and I'm sure you do too, that this topic, these things we've been talking about, directly relate to uh, eschatology one's view of the end times, the millennium, and all these sort of things. And I recognize even within our own tradition, you have different perspectives on this. And so um, I I just want to say that I I think you and I agree that it is our fervent prayer that all people whom God has ordained unto salvation will come to faith and live godly, obedient lives. And, And it's not our concern one way or the other, who they are, what they look like, what language they speak, or where they come from. I've just finished preaching a message from John 4 on the one, the Samaritan woman at the well. And, you know, the very beginning of John's gospel, he says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did, already we've got a division here between the ones who claimed that they were God's people versus those who are becoming his people through Christ. He gave them the right to become the sons of God, the children of God, and the children of Abraham. Again, it's just stunning that anyone can read from especially Matthew for for Revelation, even if they just started there, without realizing that this is a matter of covenant faithfulness and being brought into a family that started out small but has expanded and developed into this massive kingdom movement that encompasses all the earth or will. That I mentioned ago, and you alluded to this in, ter- in terms of the temple, we're not restricted. God's grace and mercy and his covenant focus is not restricted to a strip of land in the modern Middle East. And likewise, we don't need a mod- modern temple rebuilt. That's one reason why this message was preached and proclaimed as it was in the days of the apostles, because whether those people knew it directly or not, that temple was going. It was fading out. It would be leveled, never to be rebuilt. The, the sacrifices are never coming back well, that's terrible. How can you say that? Because I read what's written in the book of Hebrews. There's no need for those sacrifices. And if they should, quote, come back, that is a sign of disobedience and blasphemy to God's plan and purpose. Is this replacement theology? Well, you can call it what you want. It's New Testament theology. It's what scripture teaches, that there is this development and progress toward ever-expanding avenues and encompassing people, all kinds of people in all walks of life all over the earth.
1: What we have to start doing is when we're reading the word of God, not go, yeah, 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 and just go by quickly. Take every word seriously. And as you take it seriously, ask how that comports with your previous views on things or what you hear people saying. Because one thing is true. When we stand before the Lord, we're not going to be able to say, well, I went to church faithfully and I listened to my pastor and I did what he said. That's not the requirement. The requirement is every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and where pastors and prophets and, and people who are going to share their perspective, including you and me. If we say something and you say that does not comport with scripture, well, you need to make your decision based on that. Does it comport with scripture? God gave us his word. And if we don't use it, we don't use it at our peril.
0: Yes, and uh get a copy of God's Word that doesn't have any red letters in it.
1: All right, before we go, the church is Israel now. You can get that from CalcedonStore.com as the incredible Schofield and his book and the death of the church victorious. All of these deal with the kinds of things we're seeing happening in real time now. And yeah, it'll take a chunk of time to go through them, but then you'll be informed so that you will not be led astray with the, the newest wind of doctrine. All right. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you reach us, and we'll talk with you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit chalcedon.edu.